And it's Name Tag Sunday. Good to see many of you wearing name tags. My name is Brian, not Ryan. Ryan Davis is a great guy, but I'm Brian. And I'm uh, on the board here, and I have the, the pleasure of occasionally uh, opening the Word of God for us as I do this morning. Last week, Steve wrapped up our series on conflict and conflict revolution, and that it, it, it sounded a lot of times for people. There was a lot of response, and some people really benefited from that. This week, we're starting our summer series, and we're going through portions of the book of Proverbs. But the good thing is Proverbs is also a lot about conflict resolution. It's all about relationships. And it's about how we are to live. So we are in the book of Proverbs. Today's the beginning of wisdom. And Ryan read for us the beginning of chapter 2. I'm going to back up a little bit more. Chapter 2 is the beginning of this teacher, but chapter 1 tells us a little bit more about the teacher. So Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, in equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb, it is saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The portion that Ryan said also talked about the fear of the Lord, and we're going to come back to that. How does the fear of the Lord impact wisdom and our thinking and our actions? Proverbs have an interesting role. Proverbs are very important in Hebrew literature. Wisdom is very important in Hebrew literature. We often think of Judaism as being based on simply the law, the law of Moses. But wisdom, understanding the law, interpreting the law, instructing people how to apply the law, that's the wisdom that goes along with the law. And there's a lot of connection between uh, wisdom and law. And let's look at one, one of the things that David, remember David was this great king. He, he was partly great simply because of his humility. He, he saw things the way God saw them. When he was alone as a shepherd, he didn't think about being lonely. He thought about, oh, God is here with me. This is how God sees it. And when he was a king at his best, it's because he saw what God saw. His mistakes are when he looked from his own mind instead. This is what I want, this is what I got. But his greatest wisdom was seeing things the way God sees them. And Solomon is his son. King Solomon that penned most of these Proverbs, collected them, is the son of David. So when David is old and dying, and he's gonna pass the throne onto Solomon, he gives him these words in 1 Chronicles 22:12 this training session to be king. He says, only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. The purpose for discretion and understanding was so you can obey. So you can keep the law. So you'll understand the law. You, 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 you'll enjoy it more. You will love the law more. 
That was David's wish for his son, Solomon. And we know, you know, some of us remember the story of Solomon, this king, and God said, what do you want? He said, above all, give me wisdom. And he's known for that. He's famous for that. But this came from his dad, Solomon. In Deuteronomy, chapter 1, we've got Moses, and Moses is tired. He's trying to run every aspect of this nation, this refugee nation of nomads, and he's just worn out. So he says, following the advice of his father-in-law, he says, I'm going to appoint princes. I need other people to do the judging. I shouldn't be, the king of the country shouldn't be solving parking tickets, is what he was saying. So in Deuteronomy 1.9, he says... At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the case before, uh, between your brothers and judge righteously. In order to apply the law properly, they needed wise men to do it. So they chose wise men so they could understand what the law was about. They wouldn't just turn it into a bunch of cheap rules they would understand God's passion in his law. And they would be the judges who would decide between people. And, and then later he says, look, if it's too hard for you, then pass it up to me. I'll be the Supreme Court, but you handle the day-to-day -day stuff. And then there's a great verse that many of us have heard. We may not remember where it's from, but here it is in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Whatever else, if you understand the word of God, you're wise. Einstein was a great guy. I, I, I love his, his sort of uh, dry sense of humor. He was raised in a Jewish family, didn't really... It seems he didn't really follow or recognize God of Israel as he's portrayed in the Bible, but he believed God was up there. And Einstein, who's known to us as giving all these wise sayings, he said, I want to know the mind of God. The rest is detail. Imagine that in terms of understanding gravity and how the universe clicks. He said, I just need to see it how God sees it. I want to know the mind of God. The rest is detail. Wisdom wisdom. But there's a problem in the law. And we see it in Deuteronomy 30. It's the end of the five books of Moses. And it's a little bit scary, in fact. Because at the end of this, in Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 29, Moses has just warned the people. He's talking about the blessings of obeying the law, but the cursings of disobeying the law. And he says, you're going to do it. You're going to disobey this perfect law that revives the soul. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to lose everything because you're not going to be able to keep the law. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6, he says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and then you return to the Lord, he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. There's history. But he goes on. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that 
you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and you may live. Isn't that the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul? He told them earlier to do that. But here he's saying you, you won't be able to. Not until God changes you, circumcises your heart. Not something you can do on the outside. Not, a, not something that you can obey. It's something that God is going to do for you. Because the fact is, Moses says, this great law that I'm just finishing up, you can't do it. You can't do it. What about wisdom? Well, let's check in on Shlomo. Let's check in on Solomon and see how he did. This greatest, wisest king, famous for his wisdom, famous for being this great teacher, for deciding hard cases. He's known for his wisdom. He wrote books of wisdom. How did it work in his life? 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, and neither shall they with you, for they surely will turn you away, or turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. He was just in love with these ladies. Verse 3. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. You do the math. How many days in the year? And his wives turned away his heart. Now, I've heard some explanation of this verse that Solomon's greatest problem was that he chose to have 700 mothers-in-law. I don't think that is really the intention here. Let's jump down to verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. I love that tucked in there, who had appeared to him. He loved beauty. He fell in love with these beautiful women, these princesses who, sorry, but at the time were basically raised to be beautiful, above all. He loved that. He also encountered the face of God twice, but chose who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Oh, Solomon, who writes books of wisdom that are presented to us as the word of God, this great and awesome, wise king, couldn't do it. He couldn't be wise. Some of the most important things in his life, he failed miserably. Solomon the wise. Let's look at the book of Proverbs in context for a second. Anytime we look at a new book or a passage or even a verse, it's always best to stand back and see how it fits into all of Scripture. Proverbs comes to us in this context of the nation of Israel, this kingdom of Israel. But we already know from Moses that they would be given many, many opportunities ideal opportunities for a country to survive, ideal real estate, the actual constitution penned by God himself, anointed prophets to teach them, anointed kings to lead them, and yet he would, he would do everything for them. They would try different forms of government. They would try different kinds of politics, and every single time they would fail. 
Now, that's not a surprise to God. It might be embarrassing to us as humans, but that was part of the learning lesson. That was part of, part of extending Moses' warning that God is going to have to change your hearts before you can do this properly. And so the book of Proverbs comes as wonderful things, great advice about family. In fact, I like to think of Proverbs as what God was thinking when he wrote the law. So we go to the law and it says, thou shalt not. And then we go to Proverbs and it says, if we look at that same topic, oh, here's a case where you shouldn't do this. Oh, remember to do this. And it's all sort of the details about how to actually honor God, how to obey his word. So I think of it as God, what God was thinking when he wrote the law. Proverbs is a wonderful description of what our attitude should be, how a relationship should reflect God's values. But the one who wrote the Proverbs blew it. And that's okay. That's what God knew would happen because God had another plan. He was going to circumcise their hearts. So let's keep in mind as we go through Proverbs, it's hard. Let's put up the next slide. A couple statements that might, I don't know what they'll stir in you. But we know clearly from the teachings of Jesus that obeying the law will not make you righteous throughout the history of Israel. No one could simply obey all the law and therefore be, in a sense, equal to God's character to be fully righteous. No, we get that from the teachings of Jesus. Obeying the law will not make you righteous. Well, the second half of that then is obeying the Proverbs will not make you wise. We're going to spend all summer in the Proverbs. There's great stuff in there. But I'm telling you, if you walk out of here and decide, yeah, I'm going to obey all the Proverbs, you will not become wise. You can't. You can't do it. You will fail. You'll keep some of them, and oh, they will, they will improve. People have benefited. People who don't believe in God have benefited from following the advice of Proverbs. Absolutely. Will they transform you into a wise person? Hmm. But there is hope, because <laughs> the story doesn't end there, does it? We know that. We know that in terms of being righteous. We're righteous by the righteousness that God gives us. And what about wisdom? There was a, a church in Galatia, and it was a great church. These people were dedicated. They were passionate they were willing to give up so many things in their lives in order to conform. This church in Galatia was amazing. But when Paul writes his letter to them, he's warning them that, wait a minute, you're missing the point. And so we read in Galatians 2, verse 15, where he's starting to talk to them about their rules and regulations. And he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's talking about him and the other apostles. We're Jews. We're good Jews. We're Bible-obedient, Torah-observing Jews. We're not like those Gentiles that have eaten pork and touched unclean things and done their whole lives, done terrible things. No, we, we have kept according to the rules. But he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, those of us in the English-speaking world sometimes forget how incredibly fortunate and blessed we are because so much of the world's literature has been translated into English. If you're raised in a Swahili community, you, you might not be able to read Shakespeare and, and, and Plato and all these other things. In English, we've got tons of stuff, everything. And we've got so many translations of the Bible. And we should be reading more than one translation as we go. Translators are, are amazing how they can take ancient text and make it alive to us. But to do that, they have to make choices. Not only picking which word to put in there, but the order to put the words in, and do I need to put another word so that it flows properly and makes sense? It's, it's a difficult process. And so we read different translations to get the, the, the wisdom and the insight from different translators. But there was this guy named Robert Young who was a language scholar. And he wrote a translation of the Bible that he called Young's Literal Translation. And what he tried to do was to give just the bare bones without adding any words, without trying to use his own cultural perspective, just what are the words. And let's look at that verse in Young's Literal Translation, Galatians 2.16. This is how he translated it. A man is not declared righteous by works of law. So the contrast there is that most of our English translations say works of the law, which is okay as well. But the problem is how we interpret that. We're too easy to notice that, aha, the Torah is bad. The law of God in the Old Testament, no. And we, we, we see it to drive this further divide between Old Testament and New Testament. The works of the law, no value. But, but what Young points out is the word the is a translator's choice. So we take a step back and we see that Paul is not talking about the law. He's talking about law, rules, regulations. A man is not declared righteous by works of law. Any law. The law of Moses, the rules of Proverbs, any law you can come up with. A, a, a declaration of faith. Yep, 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 yep. There we go. I'm, 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 I'm all set. No, no, no. No works of obedience can lift any of us into the righteous presence of God. No works of obedience can make anyone adequate to enter the holiness of God. No checklist. No law. If not through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul goes on. Also, we in Christ Jesus did believe. So he's saying, even though I'm still Jewish and I'm still a Pharisee and I still obey the law, I am not acceptable to God because of those things. I'm only acceptable to God because of the righteousness of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And then it says, that he might be declared righteous by the faith of Christ and not by works of law. Any law. Rules, regulations, checklists. So I, 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 like, I like Young's boldness for just giving us the words there and not thinking, mm, should we say the? And the, the word the is not bad, except that in our minds it often triggers because of the history of the church. It often triggers, oh, Jews are bad, the law is bad, Moses is bad. And the Bible never says that. Jesus certainly never says that. And this isn't about the Old Testament law. This is about any law we can come up with. 
Let's go back to the ESV, which I usually read from. Verse 19, Paul says this. Again, remember this. This is Paul who, according to the book of Acts and what we have written about him, remained a Pharisee. He remained obedient to Torah and to the teachings of the rabbis and then loved it. For him, it was an expression of his love for God. It, he knew it didn't justify him. It was simply an expression of his love for God. But So he says, through the law, I died to the law. Or again, Young would say, through law to law, I died. Very interesting that this man who, by appearance, seems to be a legalist, says, I'm dead to law. Dead to rules and regulations in the sense that thinking that rules and regulations and obeying the Proverbs are going to make me a good person. Acceptable in God's eyes. Through law, to law I died. There's an end there. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. His life isn't about rules and regulations and checklists. His life is about the person of God. And so he has the, the, the boldness and the excitement to go on and say, I've been crucified with Christ. And that's not a bad thing. It's a liberating thing. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, the I that wants to follow rules, the I that wants to create checklists. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know him through his sacrifice for me. That's what my life is all about. Sure, I obey rules and regulations. You know, it's good to have personal discipline. It's good to know what, how God wants us to live. But my relationship with God is the fact that he loves me. I can't help but follow his word. See, Paul is giving the example of having a circumcised heart. The promise of Moses has been fulfilled in Paul's life. God has circumcised him. He's changed him on the inside. So the, the rules and regulations are no more a way of achieving God's acceptance. They're simply a way of responding to God's love. Of growing up. Of being a child of God. Of becoming more like Christ. Because it's Christ who lives in Paul now. And Paul, will, in other places, Paul will tell us that, yes, he's failed. Yes, his flesh gets in the way. But he's focusing on Christ, that renewed inner person. And this is the idea of all rules and regulations. All of them drive us to the point where we say, I can't do them all. They're not changing me on the inside. They're simply things that I make look like on the outside. And it drives us on our knees to the foot of the cross where we say, I can't. But you can I am not, but you are. I can't, you can, I'm going to let you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. Because you can, but I can't do it on my own. I will let you. This is not new. Paul is simply experiencing what Moses said was going to happen. And Moses is not alone. 
Let's look at three, three other passages, well, three passages, including that one in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3, 1 to 6, again, it says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Who's going to do it? God. He doesn't say, when you finally get your act together and try harder. No, he's saying it's not going to work until God changes you. Ezekiel. The word of God through Ezekiel says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Think of a heart of stone. Think of having this lump of granite in your chest. You're not going to operate on yourself. We strongly recommend you don't, don't pervert, preserve, or perform self-open-heart surgery. But God can, and he will. He promises that he will remove that chunk of granite and give you a beating, living heart instead. Jeremiah says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Is he saying, you have to memorize it all? <laughs> you can't. I will put it there. God promises throughout the Old Testament that the real change that's going to happen is going to come from him. He's going to do it for people. They can't do it for him. That all the rules and regulations demonstrate God's values. They demonstrate God's heart. They demonstrate God's power, his seriousness. But they alone are not enough to change us because we are broken. We're sinners. We're flawed. We can't fix that. We're dead. We can't do it mouth to mouth on ourselves. God will do it. How does God do it? Through his son. By allowing Jesus to die on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice, it is a complete and total revelation of God's love, the foundation of God's character. Holiness is who he is. Love is how it's expressed. And that's how we begin to encounter God. By confessing that we're broken and we're sinful and we aren't enough. But God loves us anyway. He loves us despite that. He loved us when we were at our worst. And we finally wake up and say, it ain't about me. It's all about you. I just want to know you better. Oh, I want to know what you think. I want to know how, what you wrote. I, I want to see how it works in my life. I want to have a circumcised heart. I want to have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. I want your words written on my mind and my heart. And you're the only one who can put them there. This is something that Paul struggled with in a few cases. Let's look at Ephesians 4. He's talking about this difference again to the church in Ephesus. And we... <laughs> The church in Ephesus is probably the church we understand the best because there were so many letters written to them. But this one is written by Paul. And he says, in the middle of a sentence, we're jumping in. He says, to put off your old self, that uncircumcised heart, the heart of stone, the, the, the heart and the mind that don't have God's words written on it. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. When we think of former manner of life, we often think sin. But you know what? A former manner of life can also be trying so hard to be good trying so hard to be righteous, trying to be the best Christian. Put it all off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Whether your desire was to have fun or to look good to other people or to start, whatever. Any desire other than loving God has a problem and then he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, in God's righteousness and God's holiness, not a version of holiness and righteousness that are simply the, the bottom of a checklist. Ooh, I got 98% on that. I'm getting to be righteous. No, 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 it's God's righteousness and it's God's holiness that we need because we're sinners. As we go through Proverbs this summer, we need to keep in mind God's not giving us a new set of rules to try to be wise. He's reminding us we don't need a set of rules. We need hearts of flesh. We need to love God. We, want to be, we need to want to be more like our dad. You see little kids running around sometimes trying to act like their dads. That's so cute. What's what we're supposed to do? We want to be like our daddy. So we're going to do this and not do that and do this and not do that. Because we want to be like our dad. We want to be in the image of God, created after the likeness of God. There's an illustration. I, I like it. And I've used it many times. I can't remember if, if, I've, if I've used it here. But if I have used it here, those of you who saw it, you get to see it again. Those of you that haven't seen it before, we'll see it again next time. But the story goes that I was in the clinic for simple, simple surgery. And as I was there... The nurse showed me the doctors on, on staff at the time, and she said, which one would you like to perform your lobotomy? And I looked at the two doctors that I could choose between, and one of them was fairly old, confident, had that air of seriousness about him. The rest of the staff treated him with great respect. Good doctor. And I looked at the other one, and he was green, maybe literally, he was nervous, he was young, I don't know if he'd ever actually done it before, but he has the degree hanging on the wall. So I'm thinking, I'm going with the old guy. But then I looked at their hands, and the old, experienced, wise doctor was wearing these. And the young, inexperienced, nervous doctor was wearing these. And I'm thinking to myself, if one of these guys is going to have a scalpel in my brain... I'm not going to trust this guy because the scalpel is not going to be able to obey him. The scalpel is not going to be able to do the little things that are necessary. I'm going to pick this guy because whatever he does, the glove will follow. He will have complete control of the scalpel. And I'm not going to lose those piano lessons and ballet lessons. Right? They're not going to cut out parts of the brain that I want to hang on to. When we are encouraged and commanded to obey to become like Christ, to become in the image of God, it is not to make us righteous, it's, allow, it's to allow God's righteousness to be revealed through us. If we choose this, if we hang on to our old lifestyles, if we decide, okay, I'm saved, what a relief, but I'm not going to give up that, and I'm not going to start doing that, <laughs> and I'm going to hang on to those feelings of bitterness and anger because they just make me feel good. We're giving no room for the righteousness of God to work in our lives and in the lives of people that we love. Our disobedience doesn't mean, oh, we don't get to go to heaven. It means we don't get to live heaven on earth. Our obedience, our love of God, and our walking in his ways, and our desire to understand the Proverbs and live the Proverbs and apply the Proverbs is our way of saying, I want to be like my dad. 
I want to be in the shape of Christ. I want to live in the image of God. I want God's righteousness and God's holiness to be alive in me so that when he moves, I move. And where he goes, I go. What he does, I do. That's the role of obedience in the life of a believer. It's not a checklist to say how good a believer you are. No, it's not about how good you are. In fact, let's look at one more verse. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. Paul is warning about that. He says, the spiritual person judges all things. In other words, if you're living by the Spirit, if you're seeing things from God's perspective, you can assess everything. You can understand everything from God's perspective. But he says, but is himself to be judged by no one. So if you are seeing everything from God's perspective, no one else can throw stones at you and say, oh, you're failing. Because your first answer is, yeah, but God loves me, and he's made me holy. No, nobody else can judge you. Not if you are really basking in the love of God. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? If he is not also in love with God, there's no way that he can understand everything. But Paul ends it with this phrase that I love and I want you to hang on to. But we have the mind of Christ. You don't need your mind to get better. You don't need your mind to become wiser. You need the mind of Christ. You need to have that experience at the cross where you have admitted that you are not good enough for all the checklists, but you accept God's love anyway, and you invite him to change you because you love him and you want to be like him, and you have the mind of Christ, and you live by the mind of Christ. It is Christ living in you that changes you. Without Christ in you, you're not much use in an operating room. You're just a hunk of rubber. But with Christ in you, you're righteous and holy, wise and good. But you still have to learn. You still have to learn how to do it. Let's learn the lesson from the manna. Remember manna in the wilderness? The Israel was about to go into the promised land. And they sent spies. The job of the spies was to figure out how do we obey God? How do we get in there? Ten of those 12 spies came back and said, oh, no, no, it's too hard. There's big guys in there. We, we can't do it. It wasn't their job. Their job was not to decide if. Their job was to decide how. But they came back and they scared the rest of the nation of Israel. And they said, we're not going in there. We don't want God's promise because it's scary. Ever been there? Or am I the only one? I don't think I want God's promise because it's scary. So God says, fine. You can die in the wilderness. Your children will go in. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness till that generation passed away of natural causes in most cases. But the problem was, and the benefit was, in the wilderness, there wasn't enough food for this entire nation. So God fed them with manna every day. This nation that was going to march into the promised land, their life, their main life experience was God feeding them by spoon. Here's the manna, here's the manna, here's the manna. They hadn't had to work a day in their lives. Because God was teaching them to rely on him. But once they crossed that Jordan... Once they got into that land, the farms were there, and they had to work the farms. See, they couldn't move in and sit there on their farms and say, God, I'm hungry. Send me some manna. Nope. But I'm really hungry. No. If you're hungry, plant, wait, and harvest. For many of us, when we first become enamored with God, first know our salvation... We have a honeymoon period. It seems like God's answering all of our prayers. Everything is easy, and things are great. 
After a while, it kind of slows down. After a while, it's very easy to start thinking, huh, maybe God's not as powerful as I thought. Maybe not God doesn't care for me as much as I thought. I guess I better start doing it myself. <laughs> and then we bring out the checklists again. No. What God is saying is, yes, I fed you by spoon for two and a half years to make sure that you knew I loved you and I'm strong enough to handle everything in your life. But now I'm moving you into the promised land. It's time for you to plant, wait, and harvest. You're not always going to feel like you felt sitting in that high chair. You're not always going to have your bottle at exactly the right temperature. It's time to grow up. You might not feel like loving God today. Too bad. You know the truth. You have the mind of Christ. You need to love God. You may not feel like following the Word of God or reading the Word of God this week. Too bad. You're a grown-up. You can handle it. You know the truth. You know that Jesus died for you. You know that Jesus inhabits you by his spirit. Go ahead. Start digging and planting and harvesting. Get out of the high chair. Don't wait till God makes you feel like a Christian. He wants us to grow up. Our dad gives us, he lends us the car keys. That's still his car and he's going to fill it with gas. We never get to the point where we don't need him. We never get to the point where we aren't dependent on him providing the rain for our crops or keeping the seasons coming so spring and fall happen. No, no, we, we still depend on him, but he wants us to grow up and start doing the right thing to become shaped like him, to obey. And the Proverbs is a wonderful, applicable book that has so many simple, obvious, and doable things. And we're going to go through it by topic. Next week, Ryan is speaking, so if you've got youth, bring them. They need to support Ryan. Online, Ryan's speaking next week. Be here. All you youth, gather somewhere and, and, and be there to support him. Proverbs is wonderful but only if we know that God is more wonderful. Proverbs is practical, especially if we know this is what God thinks about our lives. This is the loving Father whose Son died for us. He wants good in our lives. This is how we accept his goodness. We let go of this and we take hold of that. And we become like him. We act like his children. So let's go back to where we started. The next slide says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Again, Proverbs 2 talks about the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord in this case is not being afraid of the Lord. Although there's times we should be. He is ferocious and judgmental. He is holy. There are times to be afraid of him. But the fear of the Lord is not just that. It's the respect. It's the honor. It's knowing him in his place. And it's seeing things from his perspective. How do you fear God in your relationships? You think, how does God see this person? How does God see my boss? How does God see my child? How does God see my parent? That's the fear of the Lord. It's wanting to recognize God's mind in all things. It's that wisdom that he promises that we will grow into. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom doesn't make God love us. Wisdom is God's love through us. The Proverbs is not a checklist. It's not a type of law added on to another law. It's the loving father saying, here, try this. It'll be better. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? We took off the training wheels. Trust me. Do you trust me? Just keep pedaling. Just keep pedaling. 
Our Heavenly Father loves us. He wants us to grow up sometimes, but he will always be there. Our goal is not to make a bigger checklist. Our goal is to become more like him because he loves us. Once again this morning, we have prayer teams that are going to come to the front. If you want to pray about anything, they will be there with you. Anything that's happened in your life or pray for someone in your family, if you want to pray about something that God showed you this morning, they'll be here to pray with you. They'll pray for you if you want, or they'll just hold your hand as you pray. Worship team is going to come up and prepare to lead us in some more praise of our amazing Father. It's going to be a great summer. Proverbs are amazing. We'll see them so applicable. And they will help us love God better. And they'll remind us of how much he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who is here to teach us. Make us more like you. We commit ourselves to follow you this week. As we pray in Jesus' name.